church as well. Today is the start of Advent. Advent is a time of a season of preparing our hearts for our coming King. Not just Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago, plus years ago, but that Jesus is coming again, that we anticipate, we look back, we celebrate, but we also anticipate that Jesus is coming again. And so we prepare our hearts. One of the things that, that I want you to not miss out on, there are a few of these up here, these devotional guides, Advent devotionals. And those are available to you for nothing, for free. And they're just a good way for you to follow along, read along, and study along so that you're with us through this season to prepare your heart for Christmas, for the coming of our King. I want to quote something out of the intro. I thought it was really good. It's a, um, the writer, Scott Daniel, said this, Together, the church prays, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come and make all things new. And so we wait. But we do not wait like people sitting bored at the DMV or the doctor's office, rifling through outdated magazines, frustratedly anticipating our name being called. Rather, the church waits actively, like a parent preparing for the coming of a child, making everything at home ready for the new arrival. So this time isn't just a time of sitting around doing nothing. This is a time of preparing. Advent is a time of preparing our hearts. So today we begin to prepare our hearts and we've lit the hope candle. Today we're talking about hope. And my prayer for you today is that as we look at God's Word, we're going to look at a situation that I think we can relate with a little bit today. And as we see God's people cry out to God, I want us to see why we can have hope no matter what our circumstances are. And I want it to be something that when we walk out of here, we are a people of hope. Not a people of struggle, not a people that are walking around looking defeated, but a people of hope. One of the great blessings, I, I said this has been a different season for all of us, right? Things have changed a little bit. One of the great blessings in that for my family is that we've had the opportunity to sit down more, being a little less busy, and watch movies and spend time together. This week we watched a movie, it's a classic how many of you have seen The Princess Bride? Raise your hand. All right, it's, it's a classic movie, and, and we watched it together. And as I watched that, and as I was thinking about this sermon, I couldn't help but see the picture of what we see in a relationship in that movie. So I'm going to introduce it, and then we'll come back to it later. But the story of The Princess Bride is the story of Wesley, just a common guy who, who was in love with... Princess Buttercup. I never thought I'd be saying the word buttercup in, in sermons up here. But Wesley and Buttercup were in love with each other. And, and at one point in the story, early on, they realize they're in love with each other, but Wesley has to leave. And, and he says to Buttercup, he turns to her and he says, I will always come back for you. I will always come back for you. They're looking in each other's eyes. It's this real romantic thing that, you know, whatever. And, and, and Buttercup turns and says, but, but how can I know for sure that you'll come back for me? And Wesley says, because this is true love. I will come back for you. Fast forward a little bit in the story, Wesley leaves and, and is thought to have died. He's thought to be gone, and all of a sudden, five years later, Buttercup is 
is, um, has been kidnapped and she's in a bad place and all of a sudden there's a guy that's, by the way, spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen it since, like by now, it, was, it came out in 1985, so don't be too mad at me. But, but, but this guy chases them down and catches up to Buttercup and reveals that it's Wesley. After five years, he's come back for her like he promised. And he says, I told you that I would come back for you. So they're together, and it's a fairy tale, right? And fairy tales end that way, like, boom, the love story's complete, and they're together, and, and they start to journey. But the problem is, I, I'm not, I can't even remember the guy's name. Someone help me with the prince's name. Come on. Humperdinck. Prince Humperdinck is chasing after um, Princess Buttercup. And so Wesley and Buttercup are together, but they're having to run from Prince Humperdinck, who is after them. And so they have to run into um, the fire swamp, the dreaded fire swamp. And all of a sudden, they're traveling together, and Wesley keeps saving Buttercup from these difficult situations, from monsters and things like that. And they make it through, and it's happily ever after, right? But, but then Prince Humperdinck catches up, and he's ready to, to hurt Wesley. And, and so they're split up once again. And so in this story, we kind of see it's, it's almost like you have a false ending where there's this promise, and then there's the separation, and then they come together. But then there's this moment where it's like, wait, we're going to be split again? And it seems like hope is lost. Today, we're, we're looking at the story of the Israelites, God's people. And we're looking at Isaiah chapter 64, and in this chapter, the people of God have spent decades in exile. They, they've spent decades away from home in captivity, and things just aren't the way that they think they should be. They're not the way they want them to be. And they have this moment, it's almost like that story where, where they are released and, and they, they're told they can go home and it's like, okay, this is finally over and they start heading back to Jerusalem but they realize when they get there that Jerusalem has been destroyed. And all of a sudden their, their hope, that little bit of hope they had by being able to go home was kind of a false ending and they're still stuck in exile. They'll, they're still vulnerable. They're still hurting. Man, can we relate with that right now? If you would have told me in March that we were still going to be wearing masks and we were still going to be worried about this virus in December, I don't know how I would have taken that. I was one of those people that was like, oh, two weeks, it'll be over, it'll be fine. And, and if you would have told me then that we were still going to be there, and we even had this, this sense of like, okay, it's getting a little bit better, and now it seems like it's turned around, right? And it seems like we can relate with the people of God in Isaiah 64. And so I want you to hear the cry that they have for God, and I want us to see why we can have hope even in difficult circumstances, even when we feel like things aren't the way they should be. So Isaiah 64, starting in verse 1, says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. 
as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. The people are crying out to God, oh God, if you would just split the heavens open and come down and show up and change our situation. Verse 3, for when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Mark that in your mind. We're coming back to that. You come to help Uh, to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name, or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Then we see this change. So it starts out with this, this cry out, this, this pleading, God, split open the heavens and show up. Come on, just like you did before. And then we see that that plea leads them to confession and they realize that they've played a part in the messy situation they're in. And it seems hopeless, but then in verse 8, yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. I love this passage. I I love the way that this flows, the different turns that it takes. This is the people of God who are in what seems to be a hopeless situation, crying out to God, saying, God, if you could just split open those heavens and show up and do, do your thing, that would be great. And then they remember, like, God, you've done it before. Could you do it again? But then, in looking at the mess around them, they recognize their own failures and sinfulness. And then they confess their sins and ultimately find hope. And so they ask God. At first, it's, God, could you please show up? God, could you split open the heavens and come down? And at the end, it's, Lord, just look on us, we pray. We are your people. Do you see the change there? Do you see the hope that's happened As we see the response of God's people to exile, to hopelessness, I want us to see why we are a people of hope today. And it's good stuff. It starts, so they start with desperation. They cry out to God. Have any of you cried out to God this year? You can raise your hand and be honest. I have. Man, I gotta tell you, I have struggled at times. And there are times that I've just said, God, come on, could you just split open the heavens and come down and change this situation. Maybe, you're, maybe you haven't been there. Maybe you're just stronger than the rest of us. But I'm going to bet that every single one of us in here has had a time in our lives when we felt like things weren't the way they should be. And we've probably all come to a point where we've cried out to God and said, God, could you just intervene? 
could just split open the heavens and miraculously come and work in this situation because this isn't right. That's what they say, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Man, I, I can relate with that, the crying out. Let me tell you first and foremost that what they did here is great. They cry out to God, listen, when you find yourself in a place of brokenness and hopelessness and you're feeling like you don't have hope, the best thing that you can do, the best thing, is not try to fix it on your own. It's not to try to get someone else to solve it. It's to cry out to the almighty creator God. The people of God get it right here. They have messed up a lot but they get it right here because in the midst of their struggle, they cry out to the God that created everything, the God that's over everything. And so the people cry out to God. There's nothing better we can do. But see, this isn't, I want us to understand, this isn't just like a, a blind hopefulness. This isn't just a shot in the dark. This isn't just a one in a million. I'm going to cry out and just hope that something happens. This isn't, this isn't like, God, I'm going to throw this out there and just who knows what's going to happen. Because listen to what happens in verse 3. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Listen to what they said. They say, God, we're in a messed up situation. Could you split open the heavens, please? And could you come down and could you make the mountains tremble? And then they immediately say, for you have done this before. The very same words, the very same idea. God has come before and changed circumstances and shook the mountains. And so it's not just a shot in the dark. It's not just a... I'm going to say this, but I don't really believe it can happen. This is the people of God who know their God, know what God is capable of, crying out with hope that God will intervene. There's two things I see in in this part in verse 3. Number one, they know what God can do because they know what God has done. This is important for us as the people of God. They know what God can do because they know what God has done. These people cry out to God asking for God to intervene, not because they they don't think that God can, it's because they know this is the God that has been faithful to us over and over again. And so they cry out in hope, knowing that God is faithful. Listen, if you're struggling today, the best thing that you can do is not try to solve it on your own, is not try to solve it with a buddy, but to cry out to God. And, and, and part of that is that you need to know what God has done in your life and others. I know for some of you, you would say, I haven't known God that long, I haven't had that relationship, or I'm not even there yet, and so I don't know what God has done. But here's the thing, look around you, just turn your head right now, this is a good way to keep you awake anyway. See the people around you? God has done things in all of our lives, and one of the things we talked about recently was testimony. And when we hear what God is doing in other people's lives, when you hear what God has done in the church, 
you know what God is capable of. And so we need to know what God has done. Man, there have been times over this year, there have been lots of times in my life where I struggled feeling hopeless. But man, there have been so many times in my life that God has been faithful in those moments. This year isn't the first year that I've had thoughts like that. God has been faithful over and over and over again, and so I know what God can do. And I have hope in that. The second thing that I love about this cry out, this plea, is number one, they know what God has done, they know what God can do, but they don't feel entitled. They don't try to manipulate God. They don't, they don't think that they can control God. They come humbly and ask God to please work. Now, this is huge. You're going to see this later in the text. But way too often, we want a God that bows to our will, not a God that we will bow to God's will. Way too often, we want God to do what we want God to do, and we don't want to acknowledge that God is bigger and God knows more and God is greater than us. And so we can't control our God. God is not a puppet that we string along. And that's really good news. Let me tell you why. The people of God, the people of Israel, they did it their way. And guess what? It messed things up royally. Aren't you glad that I don't control God because I am not the one true God? I'm not the creator. I'm not, I'm not the one holy God. And so the people cry out to God, they know what God can do, but they're not trying to manipulate God, they're simply humbly laying down at his feet and saying, God, would you please help us? Which their humility leads them to verse five through seven, and this is gonna be a little bit odd maybe for you because, because the next part is a part of confession, and I don't think we often view Christmas and Advent and confession as something that go together but their humility in knowing what God is capable of leads them to a place of confession. As they see the mess around them and they cry out to God, it leads them to understand that the mess is not just out there, but the mess is right here. Verse, verse five through, yeah, there needs, there needs to be a remedy. Verse five through seven. But when we continued to sin against them, your ways, you were angry. How can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We, are sh we all shrivel up like a leaf in the wind. And, and, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name. So the people of God cry out in a hopeless situation. They know what God's capable of. They want God to intercede. But they humbly cry out. And it leads them to a place of understanding their own brokenness. Hear me out. This is important for us today. Way too often, we're really good at talking about the mess outside the walls of the church, outside of our own hearts. Way too often, we say, God, could you fix all of that because it's broken and it's messed up? And way too often, we forget that we're a part of the brokenness and the mess. And we stop short of confessing the ways that we have fallen short 
of God's glory and God's holiness. And so the people of God cry out to God, but they quickly realize that they need forgiveness. They, they don't control God, and they don't deserve God's grace. There's good news in that. The good news is this. If it were about control, we'd mess it up. If it were about what we earned, we'd all be in big trouble. But it's not. We confess because God loves us and God forgives us. And when we cry out for deliverance from the evil around us, we have to be willing to see our own brokenness and our own mess. And if we will, it'll lead us towards hope. And here's the reason. If you can't acknowledge your brokenness, if you can't acknowledge your unworthiness, you will never fully understand how much God loves you. Seriously, if you're entitled and if you think everyone else is the problem and you can't acknowledge the ways that you have fallen short and you are undeserving, you will never fully understand the love that God has for you. Because God's love is above our control and it definitely is above what we deserve. God loves us more than we'll ever know. And when we realize how messed up we are, we understand just how much God loves us. And so we see the turn in verse 8. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. There's this change from desperation, from God split open the heavens and come down and change my situation, to God, you are my Father, and I know that you love me, and so just look on me. Take care of me. And the people find hope in Christ, in God. And so they go from a place of desperation and bewilderment to a place of confidence. And, and one thing that I want us to understand, there's a key verse in here that I kind of skipped over. I told you to mark it in your head. We're coming back to it. It's verse 4. It says, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eyes have seen, any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Never has there ever been a God or something we can serve that will work on our behalf even when we don't deserve it. There are no other, there's no other place you can put your trust and your hope that are working on your behalf when you haven't earned it. I, I love this, Isaiah 46 Listen to what, it says, what God says in Isaiah 46. There's two false gods mentioned here. I want you to hear the language of this. Isaiah 46 says, Bel, that's Belshazzar, bows down. Nebo, that's Nebuchadnezzar, stoops low. Their idols are borne um, by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. So in other words, these false gods that you serve, they burden you as you carry that. They don't, they don't rescue you. They don't lighten your load. They burden you. They, they become heavier. This is God telling the people, quit putting your hope in false idols. They're just making it worse for you. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go into captivity. 
Verse 3, listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth, have carried since you were born, even to your old age, the gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Do you get it? You could put your hope in other gods and other things that will only burden you further. But we serve a God that works on behalf of his people. We serve a God that carries us, that carries our burdens. We serve a God that lifts us up, not drags us down. And so the people find hope in God. But, but it's important that we understand what they find hope in. It's not in their control. It's not in their ability to earn God's action and God's love and God's forgiveness. They find hope in the fact that God loves them, that God is for them. We have hope because God is for us. We, we were talking about the Princess Bride earlier. So, so the, the couple pledges their love and then they're split up and then all of a sudden they're reunited in the false ending and everything's gonna be glorious, but then they're split up again and it seems hopeless. But, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was toward the end of the movie, there's this moment um, where Prince Humperdinck and um, Buttercup are together and, and Wesley at this point, once again, is believed to be dead. And, and Prince Humperdinck is being terrible to Buttercup, but Buttercup says this. I, I want you to see the change from before till now. Buttercup says this. You can't hurt me. Wesley and I are joined by the bonds of love, and you cannot track that, not with a thousand bloodhounds, and you cannot break it, not with a thousand swords. In your face. And then later on, Buttercup says, I will not marry tonight. My Wesley will save me. Do you see the difference between before and now? What was the difference? The difference was love. The difference was the confidence of knowing that Wesley loves Buttercup so much that nothing can separate. I love that at the end. No amount of hounds can track our love. No amount of swords can break our love. That's hope and confidence. Okay, that's a fairy tale. That's just a fake story. I want you to know that the God we serve today is love. I want you to know that you've never, never experienced love like our God has for you, like our Father has for us, his children. We have hope, not because we control our God and, and pull him around on strings, not because we've earned the salvation, not because we've earned God to show up and do things. We have hope because our God is for us. Our God loves us in nothing. Not a thousand swords, not a pandemic, not evil, not kingdoms, not government authorities, not anything can separate us from the love of God. We celebrate that in the birth of Jesus, that God sent his own son, Jesus, both fully man, fully God, came to earth, became one of us. God, the creator of everything, became one of us, one of us puny humans that are weak and that 
that catch viruses. God came to earth and Jesus, our King, because he loves us and he wants to give us life. And in that, we have hope. So the worship team's gonna come up today and, and the good news today is simple. We have hope. If you don't hear this from anyone else today, I want you to hear it right now. We have hope because you are loved, not in an imperfect way, not in a love that's dependent, not on a love that's controllable. You are loved by the almighty God and nothing, nothing will keep God from loving us and from saving us if we will just wait on him. And so today we wait on the Lord with hope, not a weak hope, not a blind hope, but a hope that knows who God is, that knows what God has done, and that knows that God loves us more than anything else in the world. We have hope. As we sing this last song, the song is called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. It's the idea that God is always with us, even in the midst of messes and pandemics and struggles and broken relationships. God is with us, and God loves us, and we have hope in Christ. And so as we sing this song, there's going to be a question up on the screen. And what I want you to do is I want you to think through this text, and I want you to do a few things. Number one, I want you to think about God's faithfulness. In what ways has God shown up and been faithful in the past? Number two, I want you to confess your unworthiness. Confess the ways that it's not just everyone else that's messed up, but it's me and then third, I want you to understand just how much God loves you. And I want you, when you leave here, to walk out with the hope. The hope that we saw from Buttercup that nothing is going to stop our God from loving us. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done. And I thank you for your word. This is not just something that happened long ago. It's, it's the story of us. It's it's our story. And so, Lord, if there are any here today that have forgotten, I pray that you would remind us who you are, what you've done, but most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would remind us just how much you love us. Be with us. We worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.